In this episode, we're going to talk about Ford versus Ferrari. Yes, the movie, but also the actual event that took place in the 1960s. Welcome to the Classic Sports Car, a tribute to the sporting classics of a bygone era. So the movie Ford versus Ferrari came out in late November of 2019. Now I'm talking about it in early December of 2019. So it's only been out to the movies just for a couple of weeks. So there will be some spoilers in this podcast. So if you haven't seen the movie yet and you plan on seeing it, and you're not quite certain how it all plays out, you may want to skip this episode at least until after you have seen the movie. But yes, this is a movie based on a true event that took place in the 1960s when Ford and Ferrari went head-to-head at Le Mans, the 24-hour race that at that time was considered possibly the greatest race in the world, if definitely the, the greatest endurance race in the world. And what a lot of car manufacturers put the, uh, the largest importance on in the racing calendar. So I want to talk about this movie from kind of three different points of views. I'll do a short critique and analysis of it. I'm not really planning on diving into it and talking about it from a f- film criticism point of view. There's a lots of that that's already taken place. So I'll talk a little bit about that. But I also want to talk about what actually took place during the 1960s at Le Mans and between Ford and Ferrari. There's a lot that's not covered in the movie, and there's a lot that takes place that's kind of condensed, and it's almost a hybrid version that we see on screen. So kind of filling in the holes. So if you do see the movie and are wondering how much of that is true, is that really how it took place? I'll try to fill in those gaps. And also, I just want to talk about it from a film industry standpoint and from a viewer standpoint, what this possibly will point to in the hopes of maybe seeing more of this type of things on screen. Because yes, I did enjoy this movie. Very enjoyable movie. Anytime you get a chance to spend two and a half hours watching a movie that takes place back in the 1960s and evolves classic sports cars, both in racing and uh, in, in street form, if you're a car fan, you can't help but enjoy that. There are Ferraris, Cobras, Ford GTs, Mustangs, Porsches, Aston Martins, all depicted on screen. Yeah, now some of that might have been CG, computer generated, but still it's going back in that time, in that era, and getting to just be immersed in that. If you're a car lover, especially a, from that era, you, you can't help but enjoy this movie. There's good acting. I thought Christian Bale was fabulous playing Ken Miles. You've got big names from history, Enzo Ferrari, Henry Ford II, Lee Iacocca, Carol Shelby. So there's a lot to love and enjoy about this movie. And I would just like to thank the producers, the director, the writer, the studio that put this out, that enabled this kind of a movie to be seen by all of us on the big screen. Now this movie so far has been doing pretty good at the box office. The first week it came out, so it's opening week, it was number one at the box office. Now of course the second week it got trounced by Frozen 2, which was gonna be expected and it dropped to number two in the box office. But after two weeks, it's already grossed over $100 million worldwide. That's both the domestic and the overseas box office. So over $100 million, so it's off to a very good start. So I'm hoping that 
that will be encouragement for other studios and other producers to do additional movies of this nature, to take us back in time, to engulf us with the sights and the sounds of, of racing, of old classic cars. And I think the audience is there. There's always a challenge for a movie studio, a movie industry, a producer, when it comes to what they're going to make a movie about. In the end, they're trying to make money. It is a business. That's why it's called show business. And there's a line in the movie towards the very end when Ken Miles makes a comment to Carol Shelby about the fact that Ford was really, and still is, is trying to sell cars. That's really its first and foremost priority. And I, I won't spoil it quite yet, but there is an unfortunate incident that takes place at the very end that kind of robs Ken Miles, the main the main character, one of the main characters of the movie, of, of a prestigious title. We'll leave it at that for the moment. But when you want to make movies, you need an audience to come to the movie theater, spend their money, sit in the seats, tell their friends about it so that more people will come, spend money, and watch the movie. For years and years and years, there's always been a complaint that all the stories that are shown on the screen are really about 18 to 35, 40-year-old people. And if you look at the majority of the people that buy the tickets and go to the movies, they fall in that category, the 18 to 35, 40-year-old individuals. So from a producer standpoint, if those are the people that are coming to the movies, those are probably the stories that I'm going to pay to have produced to show on the screen because the audience can relate to that. As you get older and you settle down, you get married, you have a wife and kids, you have less time available to go spend two to three hours in a movie and paying the price for what it's going to cost. Now, if you go to a movie today, it might be 10 even $15 just for one individual to see a movie. You take another person, double that. You try to take a family, a family of five. You're looking at $50, $60, up to $100, especially if you throw in popcorn and something to drink. That gets expensive. You can see the value or the attractiveness of a $9.99, $10.99, $11.99 subscription service where you can just sit at home and watch all the content you want. So as you get older, the amount of time you've got available to go to the movies becomes less. So you just go to the movies less. And as a result of that, there's going to be less movies made that are really going to be appealing to you. Because as a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old, you want to spend all that money and go into movies to watch stories about 20 and 25-year-olds. Yeah, you might once in a while, especially if it's a big-name movie, a Star Wars kind of thing. But for the most part, you kind of shy away from that. But as that age group is getting larger and larger as a percentage of our population in whole, and the retirement, the group of individuals that are reaching retirement age and are retiring is just exploding every year, that retirement group as the baby boomers reach retirement is getting larger and larger. There's going to be a greater demand for movies that appeal to an older demographic. And as an older demographic, if you're retiring now, when were you in high school? When were you in college? When were you going to the movies? And what were some of the most memorable times? It's the 60s and the 70s, kind of the era that this movie takes place in. So I'm hoping with the success of this movie, and it looks like it's going to be a very successful movie. This will encourage additional producers and studios to look at this era and to say, hey, car racing, sports cars in this era, 
there's this popularity for it right now. There's an audience that is willing to pay money to go and watch movies about it. Let's make more. Because from historically, there's a lot of stories out there that haven't been touched. So from that era and the world of sports cars or cars in general, there's a lot of fantastic stories out there that could easily be turned into movies, which I'm hoping will have the attraction of producers and studios. So we'll get to see more and more of these kind of things. Just think about the characters involved. We got Enzo Ferrari and Carol Shelby. What about Ferdinand Porsche? What about some of the other charismatic, colorful, successful characters of that time period and what they've done at all the events that they were involved in, just waiting to be made into movies so that we could all go and enjoy them? That's one of my hopes from this movie and its success. So once again, yes, I very much enjoyed this movie. I did have to kind of take a step back after the initial part of the movie when I went in and saw it because I started recognizing what the story was going to do, where it was going to take a historical event, something that actually took place, characters that actually lived and participated in this, and kind of condense it. And I understand the need to do that. I've worked long enough, 30 plus years in the world of TV and movie production to understand this takes place all the time. A lot of times it's out of necessity. Sometimes it's out of simplicity. The events that took place that we see on screen in Ford versus Ferrari actually took place over a greater time period than what, than what is depicted on screen. And to try to show every nuanced element of that it can get a little complicated. You have to understand also from the studio standpoint who they're trying to address. Now, this movie, while yes, it is about a historical event, I'm pretty certain that the majority of the people that are going to watch this movie, although they may have heard about the events that took place, or they may know about the 24 Hours of Le Mans, they certainly know about Ford and Ferrari. But a lot of them, and I'm guessing the majority of them, probably don't know what really took place during this time period. So the studio is going to take some creative liberty to kind of simplify the events, condense them down, and put them on screen in a manner that somebody who's not really familiar about them can comprehend and understand. So I understand the studio wanting to take that approach. But I also think they need to be very careful with that approach, depending upon what the story is or what the category that that story lives in. So motorsports, well, it's a sporting event. And sports fans can be very passionate Go to any high school, college, even pro football game. There are fans that know their team. They know what they did last year. They know the last time they were in the championship or they went to the playoffs or they were in a bowl, what the result was, who they played, who they beat. A lot of them can even tell you what they did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So sports fans can be a very impassioned group of individuals. Then you combine car fans Another category with true car fans know their vehicles, know their cars. They know a lot of the history behind them, especially if they're into classic cars. When you combine those two, cars, classic cars, and sports, you have a group of people that are really going to know their history pretty well. And when you present them with a story that, while not depicting a false history, takes liberties to condense and combine elements of that history into one, there's a little bit of a risk there, and you're going to get probably a little bit of backlash. 
if you go online and research Ford versus Ferrari, as I did preparation for this podcast, you'll see a number of sites coming up that say what Ford and Ferrari got wrong and what they got right about these historical events. So I'm going to touch upon them, but like I mentioned earlier, I want to kind of give a bigger, broader history to fill in the gaps. So in case you're not entirely familiar with this event, either prior to or even after watching the movies, you can get a little bit fuller understanding of what took place or how it evolved over the years that this, this story took place. From a historical standpoint, up until earlier this year, I knew kind of the general story behind the Ford and Ferrari battles. I knew that Ford and Ferrari went to battle head-to-head at the 24-hour Le Mans in the 60s, and eventually Ford won with their GT40 race car. That's pretty much all I knew about the story. I didn't really know too many of the details, other than Carroll Shelby was involved with this process until about early 2019, when I had a chance to watch this really good documentary called The 24-Hour War. Now, this is a documentary done by Adam Carolla, a television personality comedian, and he documented what took place in this Ford-Ferrari battle in the 60s and its involvement with Carol Shelby and all the other characters that are depicted in the movie Ford versus Ferrari. So I'd gotten a pretty good understanding of what took place from watching this documentary earlier in the year. So when I went to the movies and actually saw the film Ford versus Ferrari, I was kind of questioning a lot of the things that I was seeing on screen, going, wait a second, is that really how it took place? I kind of remember a little bit different version of that from the documentary. Then a little ways into the movie, I kind of understood what was taking place and how a lot of the events and the storyline was kind of getting condensed and shown in kind of an abbreviated version compared to what really took place. So I want to back up a little bit and just kind of give a historical perspective of what really took place, kind of filling in the holes, filling in the gaps, as I mentioned, for what we see on the movie Ford versus Ferrari. In the early 60s, Ford was losing market share to General Motors, primarily because of the Corvette. Ford had nothing sporty, nothing really to appeal to a younger demographic. And Lee Iacocca in the movie makes this justification to Henry Ford II about why they need to go racing at Le Mans or put together a race program is because for the first time, as a result of the baby boom post-World War II, you're going to have young adults, teenagers, young adults with money interested in buying a car. And he didn't feel that Ford had much to offer them. And it's true. After the Corvette came out in the late 50s and started racing and having great success, it became a very popular car, especially for a young demographic. And Ford was losing market share every year to Chevrolet, and primarily because of the Corvette. So Ford did have in plans the Mustang, which would get launched in 1964. But they really wanted to try to grab the attention of a younger audience. They also wanted to appeal to the European market. Ford did have dealerships in Europe, but Ford was seen as an old fogey's car. So they really wanted something to reach out to and entice the younger the younger market, the younger demographic, who hopefully would start buying their cars at a young age and then continue to buy their car for decades and decades as they got older. That's kind of one of the purposes or one of the goals of car manufacturers. Capture them when you're young, and hopefully you'll have them as a customer for life. Before it had nothing. So they wanted to go racing. There was this old mantra that so many of the dealers 
kind of lived by, and there was a lot of truth to it, that you win on Sunday, sell on Monday. So the cars that the audience members that went to races on the weekend saw win were the ones they wanted to go buy the next week. But Ford had nothing. And the ones they did have were just getting destroyed by the Corvette. So they wanted something to attract this younger audience. But they realized it takes years and years and years to launch and develop and to grow a racing program. And they didn't want to wait. They didn't feel they could they could afford to wait. Henry Ford II was familiar with Ferrari. They were the number one racing program in the world at that time. Just about every race they entered, they won or at least very, very competitive. In the world of Le Mans, which was seen as kind of the pinnacle of racing, especially on the world stage, Ferrari was just trouncing everyone. They actually won six straight years from 1960 up to 1966. But Ford didn't know how they could compete against Ferrari. Well, Ferrari, unlike so many other car manufacturers, made cars to support their racing program. It was just the opposite of what the Americans were doing. The Americans were going racing to help support and sell their cars during the week. Ferrari built cars specifically for racing. And when he needed money, he'd sell a few on the street to customers so he could support his racing habit. That's what Ferrari was all about, was racing. But as a result of that, even though he was very, very successful in the racing circuit, he was basically bankrupt. He had no money. And rumor had it that he was interested or would, would be interested in selling Ferrari. So Ford decided to try to buy Ferrari. They went over there and discussed potential deals with Ferrari. They spent a number of months working with Ferrari and they spent millions of dollars sending guys over there, doing an internal audit, coming up with different offers and presenting them to Ferrari. And they were gonna have kind of two separate companies, Ford Ferrari and Ferrari Ford. And that's depicted in the movie. One thing that's kind of truncated in the movie is the fact that in the movie, it looks like Lee Iacocca goes over there and basically, here's an offer, Mr. Ferrari, would you like to sell your company? And he sits and he reads it and he makes everybody hang around all night long while he reads the offer and then finds something he does disagrees with and offers off. Well, in reality, that took a number of months and Ford spent millions of dollars trying to do this. In the end, the stickling point, as we see in the movie, had to do with the racing program. In the movie, it appears that with this purchase of Ferrari by Ford, if it does take place, there will be a racing program that Ferrari can be a part of. But in the movie, Enzo Ferrari says, wait a second, if I read this right, I won't be able to compete in Le Mans because Ford wants to compete in Le Mans and we can't have competing factors within the same company. That wasn't the actual sticking point for the breakdown of the negotiation and the sales. It was actually more about the Indy 500. The contract would not have allowed Ferrari to compete in the Indy 500, which is something Ferrari had his eyes on. Ferrari is getting to be more popular and have a greater inroad in the American market. And as a result of that, wanted to have a presence at the Indy 500, but the terms of this contract would not have allowed that. So Ferrari said, no, I'm not gonna do it. And Yes, that really annoyed Henry Ford II. He had spent all this time and money trying to buy the company. So Henry Ford II turned that old saying, if you can't beat them, join them around. And if you can't join them, then I'll beat them. He decided, I will go and beat Ferrari. And what's the top race in the world? 24-hour Le Mans. Ferrari's been winning it for years and years and years. We're going there to beat Ferrari and we'll establish our own racing program to do that. 
So as a result of that, Ford starts a racing program, an international racing program, and they're willing to spend whatever it takes to have a successful race car to go to Le Mans and beat Ferrari. Of course, Ford has nothing of this, of this sort, so they start looking at some other companies that have race cars that they have some kind of an affiliation with. So they go over to Britain, and they kind of look at Lotus. Lotus has been racing Formula One and Indy and using Ford engines, but Lotus is a pretty small company, and Ford really didn't think that Lotus had the capacity to take on something of this matter. They looked at a couple of other British companies, and then they went over to Lola. Lola had their own mid-engine endurance car that was using a Ford engine. And so Ford and Lola kind of worked together on a chassis and a body, and Lola kind of provided a couple of these to Ford for their development purposes. Ford took the body and chassis and put a 255 cubic inch V8 engine in it, and that was kind of the first rendition of what would become the GT40. Well, they're not having a whole lot of success. And actually in 1964, none of the races that the GT40 enters, do they ever finish. They're having all kinds of problems with it. They take their small 255 V8 and replace it with a 289 V8, 4.7 liter, and prepare to go to Le Mans with this. Well, this car is not very well developed and it's not very good. They're having all kinds of problems with it. But Ford's a pretty big name, and they show up at Le Mans in 1964 for their first time, and there's a lot of people taking notice. Now, Le Mans always has this huge following because it's one of the most popular and successful and, and grandest races in Europe. But now Ford, the big American company, is showing up in 64. So there's more and more people that are showing up to watch this year's race in 1964 to see what this car is that Ford has developed and if there is any risk to Ferrari and its dynasty from Ford. Well, the GT40 has all kinds of problems. You see that depicted in the movie. None of them finish. Gearbox problems, there's stability problems. When it gets up to speed, there's it, it's, it loses a lot of stability. So it's an embarrassment for Ford in 1964. Now, in 64, Carroll Shelley is not yet involved with the GT40 Le Mans program. But he is at the 1964 Le Mans. He's there with his Cobra Daytona. Now that is his own race car that is using a Ford V8 engine in it. That car actually wins the GT class at Le Mans in 1964. So Le Mans is broken into kind of two different categories. You have the prototype, which are the cars that are primarily designed and developed specifically for racing. And that's what the GT40 was. That was the Ferrari P-types, the P for prototype. These are cars developed and designed specifically to go racing. There's another class of cars, the GT class. And the GT class is really based upon actual production cars. So there has to be some level of actual car manufacturing taking place with these cars that are racing in the GT class. And that's what Carroll Shelby wins in the 1964 Le Mans, he wins the GT class with his Cobra Daytona, which is a coupe version of the Shelby Cobra. So at the end of 64, Ford's embarrassed and they realize, okay, we need some additional help. Now Ford does have a relationship with Carroll Shelby. They've been providing him with engines for his Cobras and they've been seeing the success he's having. So they realize, you know what? We need someone that really knows how to win at Le Mans. In 1959, Carroll Shelby actually won Le Mans as a racer, racing for Aston Martin, 
And then in 64, he wins as, in a sense, the manufacturer with the Cobra Daytona. So Ford reaches out to Shelby and says, you know what, we need you to come help us with our GT40 program. So Shelby gets involved and basically takes over running the GT40 race program in early 1965. One of Shelby's current racers is Ken Miles. So they get the GT40s and Ken Miles starts working with them along with Shelby and Shelby's number one engineer, Phil Remington. And they realize there's all kinds of issues, all kinds of problems with this car. And Remington, along with the guidance of Ken Miles, who had been an engineer prior to actually starting his own shop and becoming more of a racer than actually a mechanic or an engineer, basically took apart this entire car. They changed the aerodynamics, they changed the suspension, changed the brakes, changed all kinds of things and gradually started improving it and taking it to a level to where it would truly be more competitive. Well, they only have roughly two months with this until the first big race of the season takes place in 1965, and that's the Daytona. Now, in 65, the Daytona was a 2,000-kilometer race, as opposed to the 24-hour race that it would evolve into the very next year. Now, Ford entered a number of the GT40s, and Ken Miles does win outright the 1965 Daytona. The very next race that the GT40 goes to in 65 is the Sebring. That's the 12-hour Sebring, and they also win that race. So Ford is off to a really good start with this new relationship with Carroll Shelby and Ken Miles driving for them. In 1965, they then show up to Le Mans, and they've got this huge contingent. They've got a number of factory-based GT40s, and they have a few others that have been purchased by customers that are racing. Now, the GT40 factory program at this point, with Shelby running it, has decided that that 289 engine isn't quite powerful enough. They want the 7-liter 427. So they put that engine into the Ford factory cars. And so at 65, you actually have a group of GT40s racing with the 7-liter 427 engine, and you've got some private entries racing with the older 289 4.7-liter. So in 65, Shelby and his team show up at Le Mans and qualify and are having great promise. They're thinking, yes, this is the year we're going to do some great things. Well, the night before the race, somebody from Ford gives the order to take out all the engines that Shelby and his crew have been working on and designed and developed and tuned and replace them with engines from Ford. They wanted to be able to say, this car that is at one Le Mans in 65 actually was running with a Ford-developed engine also, not a Shelby-developed engine. Well, you can guess where that ended up going because as Shelby said in the movie, you can't win Le Mans by committee. And yep, there was all kinds of issues once again. And none of the cars lasted past the midnight hour. So they start the race at four in the afternoon and it runs until the next day at four in the afternoon. But by the morning of the second day, all the Fords had retired again. So once again, Ford is embarrassed and Ferrari wins Le Mans in 65. At that point, Henry Ford II is even more annoyed and ticked off. And he says, whatever it takes, we are gonna win next year. So they continue to develop the engine. They go to the 427 and that's gonna be the engine. 
and Miles and Remington and Shelby work for another year. And in 1966, they have great success again at the beginning of the season. Ken Miles wins the Daytona 24 hours. So in 65, the Daytona is 2,000 kilometers. And in 66, it becomes the 24 hours of Daytona, which Ken Miles wins. Ken Miles wins the next race, the 12 hours of Sebring. Then they go to Le Mans for the 24 hours. And as depicted in the movie, Ford beats Ferrari. Not only do they beat them, but they finish one, two, three. And yes, there is a controversial finish. Miles is way ahead of everyone. And with a couple hours left to race, Ford executives decide that they want to see a photo finish. They want the lead car to slow down so they can have three Fords GT40s cross the finish line, basically at the same time. In the end, it's actually one and two crossed together and third place a little bit further back. And yes, Ken Miles is, in a sense, robbed of his victory because as they finish at a photo finish, the car, the number two car, which started basically 18 feet back on the grid from Miles, had actually covered more distance. So they do award that car, Bruce McLaren, outright win of Le Mans in 1966. And then just a couple of months later, Ken Miles testing the next version of the GT is killed at Riverside International Raceway testing the new GT40. So that is just as was depicted in the movie. So that's the, a little bit more fuller story of what took place in the Ford Ferrari showdown in the 1960s focused around the 24-hour Le Mans. So let's go back and just kind of compare some of these events to how they're depicted in the movie, kind of a, this is what the movie shows and this is what really happened. For starters, Ford was interested in buying Ferrari and tried to do so. They did spend a number of months and a number of million dollars trying to do that, but in the end, Ferrari did back out. And there was a lot of speculation that Ferrari was never gonna sell to Ford. He had still great memories of what the American bombers had done to his factory during World War II, and there was no way he was going to sell his, his manufacturing to an American company, especially one that was so closely connected to the creation of bombers that destroyed a lot of Italy. And yes, there's a lot of speculation that he was just trying to get Fiat, which was kind of a national automobile company of Italy, to really step in, which they did do, but it was a couple of years later, not not as quickly as was depicted in the movie. The movie kind of shows the Le Mans approach and attempt by Ford is only taking place over a two-year period where they attempt to create a racing program, reach out immediately to Shelby, don't have success, and then the following year they go back and win it all. So as I mentioned, that really took place over a three-year period. In that first attempt in 1964, Shelby is not even part of the Ford GT program. He's racing in his own Cobra Daytona and actually winning the GT class. Now, Ken Miles, the movie, although called Ford versus Ferrari, is you could almost state it's the Ken Miles, Carol Shelby movie, because it's really based upon those two characters. And you could almost argue that it's really Ken Miles' story that we're watching on screen in this movie. It really highlights the personality of Ken Miles and the antagonistic nature of Miles and a number of the Ford executives. 
and them not really wanting him to race for them because they felt that he's really not a Ford-type man. He's really outspoken. He's got kind of a hot-tempered. He's referred to as a bulldog, as his nickname in the movie. And they're worried that, well, if he does win and they put a microphone in his mouth, what could he say? Could it be an embarrassment for Ford? The, the line's even thrown out a couple of times that he's really not a Ford kind of guy. That there was that friction between Miles and some of the executives because they really didn't feel to a certain extent that he was, he fit that kind of public persona that they wanted to identify with a Ford individual. And Bruce McLaren, who had been part of the GT40 program from the very beginning, starting back in 1964, was kind of seen by a lot of the Ford executives as, as more the Ford man. So when McLaren was actually given the outright win in 66, there's also speculation as to whether or not Ford knew that that was going to take place if they did have their one, two, three photo finish, or if that was just a, oh, we didn't know this was going to happen. Oh my goodness, look what the rules dictated as a result of what we did. So Miles wasn't Ford's number one go-to guy in their mind, but he was part of the GT40 program beginning in year two, because he was a good friend of Carroll Shelby, and he had been racing with Shelby and really did all the development driving for the GT40 once Shelby got involved. In the movie, you watch the very first, what looks like the very first race of the GT40 taking place, and Ken Miles back in Los Angeles just listening to the race on the radio. Now, had that been in 64, Miles wasn't attached to the GT40 program, and the next year, in 65, he was actually in Le Mans racing a GT40. So that aspect of the story is a little different than what actually historically took place. The movie shows Leah Iacocca, who was at Ford at the time, going out and reaching out to Carroll Shelby and asking him to take part in the GT40 program, where Ford and, and Shelby already had a relationship based upon racing. Shelby was using the Ford engines in his Cobra, both in the Roadster Cobra and in the Cobra Daytona that he was having great success with. And some accounts of the story actually indicate that it was Shelby that reached out to Ford to become involved in the program. The movie indicates that once Shelby got a hold of the GT40, some of the major problems had to do with aerodynamics, the car becoming unstable at high speeds, and that was true. Once the car got over about 150, 160 miles an hour, the front end had this tendency to want to rise up about six inches off the ground, which if you're racing in the Mulsanne Strait, going in an excess of 200 miles an hour, you don't want your front end lifting off the ground. So Shelby, with the help of Ken Miles and his racing and testing it, and engineer Phil Remington devised a number of items, air dams, spoilers, to help improve on the aerodynamics to make it much more stable at speed. Another issue that was depicted in the movie was the gearbox challenges, and that was true. Initially, the GT40 was using an Italian gearbox, and it just could not withstand the torque of the V8 engines. And so they had a lot of gearbox failures and also brakes. There were brake issues. It was a problem with the brakes they were using. The technology and the development of the braking system hadn't advanced to the point of being able to keep up with the speed that these cars were going. Because along this long backstretch at Le Mans, cars were getting in excess of 200 miles an hour. And at the end of that, these cars had to decelerate and brake extremely hard 
to go into the next turn. And so they were going from over 200 miles an hour to basically first or second gear. That's an incredible amount of speed to break against in such a short period of time. So a lot of cars had challenges with brakes, especially the GT40s that were getting in the seven liter engine era, over 200, 210 miles an hour down to this backstretch. So braking was a considerable challenge for a lot of the cars, especially the GT40s. And the last element I want to touch upon that was depicted in the movie was the way Henry Ford II kind of ran and managed Ford. Just about every time you see him, he's got a group of executives that travel with him. And yes, it's a lot of managing by committee. Well, this is the way Henry Ford II had kind of always ran Ford. And it was kind of a result of how he came into the position of running the company. In the 1940s, Henry Ford II was in the Navy. He was a Navy aviator. And his father, Edsel, was running Ford Motor Company. Henry Ford I, at that time, was getting pretty old. And he was kind of getting a bit senile. And he wasn't really being trusted with a lot of the decisions that was being made. So his son, Edsel, had taken over a number of years earlier. So during World War II, Henry Ford II is in the Navy. And his father, Edsel, is running the company. Well, his father dies of stomach cancer in 1943. It was something that was not expected, wasn't planned for, obviously. And so as a result, Henry Ford II had not yet really been brought up to understand how to run the company. It was expected that Edsel would be continuing to run the company for many years into the future. But when he develops stomach cancer and dies in 1943, none of the other family members have really been prepared to take over running of the company. So at the end of World War II, Henry Ford II is basically given the company saying, okay, we need you to now run the company. He's not really prepared to do that. He doesn't really know how to run an automobile company, doesn't really know about marketing or manufacturing. So he goes out and finds people that do. He kind of surrounds himself with experts in the areas of running a business since he doesn't really know how to do that. So it's a pretty wise and shrewd move on his part to surround himself with others. And he even hires a group of young men who had been statisticians in the Army Air Force during World War II to work with them. And they're labeled the whiz kids, and they help him run the company and make a lot of the decisions. So as a result of not really knowing how to run a business, Henry Ford II basically surrounds himself with a committee to help him make decisions. And you can kind of see that being played out. Of course, it's this is 20 plus years later, but it's the way that Henry Ford II had learned how to run this company. And you still see it played out to a certain degree, even though he is definitely in charge and making all the decisions. So I hope you have a chance to go out and see Ford versus Ferrari, hopefully in the movie theater. If you don't get a chance to see it in the movie theaters, please watch it. Either buy the Blu-ray when it comes out or watch it on one of the various streaming networks because I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening to the show. For additional features, please visit the website at classicsportscar.com. Please join us again for another episode. Until then, I hope to see you out on the road in your own classic sports car.